Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Good afternoon, my people. How are you doing today? I'm so excited to be talking to you. I'm so happy that I'm able to record and get content out on time because life is kind of crazy and hectic, but you all are patient. You rock with me and I love and appreciate you so much. So, you know, I'm trying, your girl's working on making sure I can get you good content good conversations with good people that are doing great work. You know, that is the model. That is the mission. It's been almost three years now and counting. So appreciate y'all a lot. Um, so first up, I had a chance to talk with Professor Lara Bazelon, who recently wrote a pretty dope op-ed in the New York Times looking at the question we had posed last week when I talked with Wendy Muse about whether or not Kamala Harris is a progressive prosecutor. I mean, that is a very real conversation that needs to be had, particularly as she has characterized herself as, you know, as such. Um, And so that's first up. And I really appreciate Professor Bazelon for taking the time to chat and, you know, diving in. So definitely, you know, check out that conversation and follow her on Twitter. Um, And then up the second segment for today's episode is actually, I'm really, really happy about this. Today is the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Um, and I was trying to think of something like, you know, to post or share and definitely check out the interview that we had, um, a while back, Karen Chaos, uh, with Kyla Hayes and, um, some other of the staffers from rewired.news who, um, Kyla, uh, runs an abortion clinic in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, um, if you've seen any of my tweets about it, I mean, there's like a 40 week siege. There's, they, they have been under immense um, just attack from conservatives in the area. They bust people in. It's it's really insane. Um, check out the the description for the episode because there are some links to a recent article that that Kala uh, participated provided comment for. Um, that has a good overview of what that has been like for them. But um, shifting just slightly, it's the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. I was really excited that I was able to find this episode. Um, there is a podcast, Choiceless. Uh, Rewired.news has, you know, I'm big fans of folks over at Rewired. You know, shout out to Jody Jacobson. Um, but uh, this this looks at, you know, parental notification laws, this, this conversation. And I had actually lost this episode. I couldn't figure out where I had saved the file at. I was really excited to have it. Um, this conversation, the host, Jen Stanley. And um, during the election cycle, just the work I was doing and just, you know, running around kids, et cetera, I lost this. I, I just couldn't find this file and I was devastated. Um, but I am really excited because cleaning up my computer and doing some stuff, I found it. And um, as a mom of teens, I really thought that this was a good conversation. I really think that when we're talking about, you know, reproductive rights and choice and reproductive justice, looking at the effect on minors, um, you know, whether it's, you know, young people look, trying to cross state lines in order to get care without involving their parents. I mean, just all types of things. Right. And so this was a really good conversation that I thought that we should be having. 
And I'm excited that on Roe v. Wade Day, on Roe Day, I was able to find it. So please check it out. Also check out Choiceless and check out the other great content and work from rewire.news. Um, no, I am not a paid advertiser for them, but I really do appreciate the thoughtfulness of a lot of the commentary and journalism done by that outlet. So two interviews for the price of one, an amazing day to really reflect and definitely go check out that Care and Chaos. There's actually a documentary, which is what the, the conversation is about, but also check out the, the Care and Chaos episode if you have time to. All right. Talk to you guys soon. Peace. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Way with Anoa. I am really excited because there was this amazing piece that came out recently. A lot of us have been having a conversation about um, Senator Harris and what does it mean to be a progressive prosecutor. We have actually seen like a wave of people running as actual progressive prosecutors, progressive policies, progressive platforms, with progressive track records, right? Um, so it's very interesting to see her characterized as a progressive prosecutor with what I've learned about her um, history, you know, first as a DA and then later as, as an attorney general. Um, so I was saying last week when I did the episode with Wendy Muse, like, we're going to have to have a conversation. I'm going to have to find someone to bring in so we can have this conversation about what it is to be a progressive prosecutor and how Kamala Harris fits in all of that. And lo and behold, there is this New York Times op-ed that comes out a couple of days later. It's like the, the the stars were aligning for this conversation to happen about, you know, met, you know, kind of evaluating and walking through being a progressive prosecutor and, and her policies and stuff, right? And it's not necessarily like a lot of people are taking it as a condemnation of her as a person or as a candidate, but we really do actually have to have robust dialogue and understand when people are using these terms of art and these phrases what it actually means. So I am joined today by Professor Laura Bazelon, um, who's an associate professor with the University of San Francisco School of Law. Uh, this is me talking to the professor. This is not in her like official capacity, you know, with, with the school law or anything. But I think understanding that I'm actually talking to someone who has a background in not just, you know, criminal and juvenile justice and racial and social justice, like who actually, you know, is an advocate and has this background and understanding about advocating in the system, et cetera, so that we can center this conversation, right? Um, myself, you know, you guys know I'm a lawyer by training, but this is not my bag. This is not my area. So it's really awesome to have someone here who is much more well-versed than I am. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you. So thinking about, you know, just the community that you're in, the type of work that you do, um, can you can you just talk to me a little bit about like what made, what led you to writing this op-ed? So my background is in criminal defense and in innocence advocacy. After I clerked for a judge, after law school, I worked for seven years as a federal public defender. So I represented poor people who had been charged with federal crimes by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles. And then after that, I spent three years at Loyola Law School in L.A. as the director of their small innocence project. So I come to this issue of what is a progressive prosecutor from a place of having been on the other side defending people by and large, people of color who are poor, some of whom have been wrongfully convicted. And in my experience, particularly in innocence advocacy, what I have come up against over and over 
is the implacable resistance of the district attorney and the attorney general in resisting any challenge to these convictions. And while I never litigated directly with or against Kamala Harris, I knew because I'm very familiar with her record as someone who is a resident of California and also a law professor that she was one of those forces, which is to say that when people advocated on behalf of their wrongfully convicted clients, she, like so many other DAs and attorneys general, ended up standing by the convictions and insisting they were valid, often invoking very technical grounds to do so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in thinking about, you know, this 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 current reconfiguration or, or recharacterization, I guess, of her as a progressive prosecutor, right? And thinking about you know, we've actually had, as I said, you know, in the beginning that we have examples, um, you know, from your, from the, the counties around your area, from, you know, we had several folks actually running California this last cycle. Um, unfortunately, you know, they ran up against police unions and, and moneyed interests in several of those races. But we've had uh, recently, you know, uh, uh, Wesley Bell in, in St. Louis County, we had Rachel Rollins, we have, you know, various examples of, you know, people who have, you know, different elements of what is considered, you know, more progressive policies and just even a, a different approach to how a DA's office should or county prosecutor's office should run. Can you just talk a little bit about like what the difference is between what we've seen traditionally with DA and AG offices and then this kind of new way of thinking about how to change the nature of the way these offices run? Sure. I want to start by saying that the examples that you invoked are excellent examples. I also want to say that before folks like Rachel Rollins and Wesley Bell and Larry Krasner and Kim Fox and Satana DeBerry won and got elected in the recent history, there were also people who ran farther back in time. So for example, Craig Watkins ran on a platform of criminal justice reform in Dallas County in 2007 and started a conviction review unit there. We also have Ken Thompson, who tragically passed away at the age of 50, but he started instituting reforms in 2013 and ran on a platform of racial justice. So while you are absolutely correct to say that we are in a current moment of what I call a ripple, because I'm not Mm -hmm. sure it's a wave Mm -hmm. of people who are running and winning on these platforms, They aren't new to this game. And in fact, other people have been playing and winning it. So your next question is, well, what makes somebody a progressive prosecutor? And the answer to that is multifaceted. But what a lot of these candidates and now DAs have in common is a commitment to dismantle the system of mass incarceration, which disproportionately affects the poor and people of color. How do they do that? Well, they refuse to prosecute certain first offender low-level felonies. They refuse to seek the death penalty. They refuse to seek the maximum possible sentence. They stand behind bail reform, and I cannot tell you how crucial it is to overturn our cash-for-bail system, which is in place in most jurisdictions in the United States. So, And they also investigate officer-involved shootings very carefully and objectively, rather than what we have seen in the past. Um, They work with the police, but also with the acknowledgement that police should be wearing body-worn cameras. So they are coming to this job from a place of, I don't want to be another brick in the wall of mass incarceration. I want to be a tool to deliver justice while also recognizing that the tough on crime policies that we've had in place for decades are not working, and they're not working for anybody. 
And I appreciate you giving a little bit more of that context in terms of we have actually had, and I appreciate those two examples you gave me of other prosecutors that ran on like criminal justice, racial justice platforms that predate this current, you know, cohort we're, we're talking about, because that's one of the, the, the justifications we, we see from folks is that um, while those were different times or it was hard to, I mean, it's always hard to be at the forefront of something different and pushing for change. So I do appreciate you giving me examples from like 2007, 2013, which coincide, you know, with during the time that that, that Senator Harris was actually in office. Now, just, just, just kind of like bringing it to like her actual record, right? And like, you know, some of the things that you were laying out, like, can you just talk to us a little about like, well, what was some of the things like when you were processing, you know, progressive prosecutor, you know, Senator Harris is actually record as a prosecutor and then as the AG, like, what were some of the things that just weren't matching up with what we just discussed? I guess I want to start by saying that this is a label that she affixed to herself. So it's not as if other people are saying it. She is saying, I was a progressive prosecutor. So when someone says that, you go back and look at their record. What is the record? If you look at her tenure as San Francisco district attorney, we had several crime lab scandals. In one of them, because of the malfeasance, the misdeeds, and corruption of a lab technician, over 600 cases had to be dismissed. And in the course of litigating some of that, what surfaced was a memo written by a high-level deputy that was directed to an even higher-level deputy, making it clear that they had known about this person for a long time. And rather than comply with their obligations, which were to disclose the information that they had to defense attorneys, they hadn't. And when a judge found out about that, she was quite irate and issued a pretty scathing written opinion calling Kamala Harris to task for what she called her indifference to this mass violation of constitutional rights. And rather than accept responsibility and do the right thing, what Harris's response was, she um, filed a motion seeking to have the judge disqualified for a conflict of interest. And the supposed conflict of interest was that the judge was married to a defense attorney who had spoken publicly about the importance of disclosing this kind of information, which was, I think, a borderline frivolous challenge and failed, but also is just absolutely not the right response. So that's just one example. While she was attorney general, there were a lot of high-profile police shootings in California. And there was a big push in the legislature to pass two bills, one to mandate that all police wear body-worn cameras, which, as you know, is crucial to finding out what happened in these incidents. And second was to direct the office of the attorney general, and she was the attorney general, to investigate these cases. Because as you know, when it's left to the local DA, who often works hand-in-glove with the local police, you can't always expect a full and fair investigation. And she actively opposed both of those measures. And it really drew the ire of a number of people across the political spectrum. Members of the state Senate Black Caucus spoke out against her. Activists spoke out against that stance. And then also just other progressive groups. So it's not just one incident. It's not cherry picking. I could go on and talk about her opposition to the death penalty in person as a private matter, but then her decision to defend it when it was declared unconstitutional, then there are her stances when it comes to wrongful convictions. And so we're talking about an overall record that while certain mm -hmm. aspects of it are reform-minded, overall, to me, speaks to someone who was not 
progressive in the way that I define it in any event. Right. And I, and I think not just the way you define it, the way a lot of us who have been taking a real like critical look at like how can the role of the prosecutor be changed in a way to actually benefit and uplift communities versus just seemingly constantly suppressing and, and, and over whether it's overcharging, over prosecuting, over sentencing, just, just a whole long list of things, right? Um, it's just interesting when you brought up the, the issue of the death penalty and what, what one personally believes, but when they're in a position of, of to be able to leverage justice to actually work to bring it back into fruition. I mean, like I'm not in California, but I do remember when the death penalty moratorium happened in Illinois, um, in part as a result of a lot of the things that are, came out of the John Burge line of cases. Um, it just seemed like that's indefensible in some ways that when there there is all this documentation or evidence or, you know, legal discourse coming down that this is not, you know, not only is it unconstitutional, but these are the reasons as we having it laid out, you know, challenging and trying to reinstitute a practice that you already personally don't believe in. And then there's all this evidence that for reasons why it's problematic, it just seems to, you know, fly, contravene this conversation we're having right now about whether or not that person was reform-minded or progressive. Right. And I think there's two points about Kamala Harris and the death penalty. The first point is her public-facing stance about why she was choosing to appeal the federal judge's order declaring it unconstitutional. This wasn't necessarily in the legal briefs that her office filed, but it's what she said publicly when she was asked. And she said something along the lines of, I am doing this to safeguard the rights of criminal defendants. And I just find that to be an unfathomable explanation, because how could you possibly say that a decision that is going to spare 740 plus people on California's death row from being executed is somehow going to uphold their constitutional rights? It just flies in the face of reason and really caused me some degree of outrage. The second thing I would say when it comes to Kamala Harris and the death penalty is her action or lack of action in the Kevin Cooper case. And I don't know if your listeners are familiar with it, but Kevin Cooper is an African-American man. He was convicted in the 1980s of murdering a white family and a little boy who was a friend of the family. And the trial was just absolutely tainted by racism, by corruption. And all along, he's maintained his innocence. When she was the attorney general, Kevin Cooper, with his lawyers who work pro bono, petitioned for retesting under advanced DNA of certain crucial pieces of evidence in the case. And the San Francisco, I mean, excuse me, the San Bernardino County DA, which prosecuted him, refused, and Kamala Harris refused. And, you know, as attorney general, that was a major decision with a lot of impact. And then fast forward a couple of years, now she's in the Senate. Nicholas Kristof, who won the Pulitzer Prize and is a New York Times columnist, wrote an expose of Kevin Cooper's case that went viral. And after that, she reversed position and said that, oh, indeed, she did support DNA testing. And I guess my question was, well, where were you in 2014 and 2015 when he was asking and you could have had some power to do it? And now that it seems more acceptable and now that millions of people know about this case and are outraged by it, you're changing your mind. The coda to that is that the governor finally did order DNA testing. And so it is ultimately going to happen. But that's a situation in a very particular case involving racism, involving corruption, involving what may very well be an innocent person, where she had the obligation, I think, and it's certainly the prerogative to take a step and she didn't take it. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think that's 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 really salient point. So when we're looking at all this, like, what are some of your like like now she has official it's official that she is running for president, and you know there are people who say, well, we should be you know either we shouldn't be you know going through this deep through people's you know policies. What they say now is what matters. I I don't necessarily agree with that personally. I think how you know we look at this remaking of Senator Harris as this criminal justice reformer and champion is kind of um, tenuous because of what we just been discussing in terms of her actual record. And just going back to the point you made about part of her public rationale that she gave for defending the uh, the challenging, you know, the unconstitutionality of the death penalty in California was that it would protect the rights of criminal defendants. I agree. Like, that's like absurdity. Um, I had someone, you know, make a similar comment to me uh, in critique I had recently that that this is, that we need prosecute, like this is a form of civil rights that we're trying to deny people. And, and looking at the way that instead of really grappling with the complexity of what does it mean to have someone that maybe since they've been in the Senate has maybe voted or, 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 or advocated in one way, but in their recent positions that were directly on point to that issue, you know, maybe have a mixed record, but for overwhelmingly, you know, advocated and did things in their professional capacity in, in a completely different or the, almost the opposite way. Like, how do we reconcile that to be able to evaluate people going forward, particularly as we start pushing them on, you know, platform issues? Like, when, so when you're thinking about, you know, the breadth of knowledge that we know, and then looking at now this 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 criminal justice champion and pro- self-proclaimed progressive moniker, how do we go about, in your opinion, reconciling the two as we move forward? for a very long, long cycle. Well, I have two things to say about that. The first is I recently wrote a book called Rectify the Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. And it talks about the catastrophic harm that wrongful conviction causes, not just to people who are wrongfully convicted, but also to the crime victims and their families who are told a lie and the jurors who have to live with having voted that way and well-meaning people in law enforcement who thought they were doing the right thing. But the theme of the book really is what do we do now moving through and sorting through this wreckage and this idea of reconceiving the criminal justice system through the restorative lens of who was harmed, what are their needs, and whose obligation is it to meet those needs. And I talk about very specific stories when I'm exploring that whole practice. And I think that you can, in some ways, map it onto a candidate's platform. I think, for example, then rather than pretend to be a progressive prosecutor when, in fact, you are not, what you can do is reckon with your record. You can reckon with the harm that you caused other people. You can acknowledge your wrongdoing. You can acknowledge your lack of courage. You can acknowledge the stands that you took that were not progressive and were, in fact, wrong. And I think then you can take steps to try to, in some ways, atone for that and re-knit the community back together. And that goes to the second point, which is really about vetting. And it is true that there's been a lot of criticism of me and the op-ed for essentially operating like a liberal firing squad. But what I have to say is, you know, we are at the very, very beginning very beginning of the campaign for who's going to win in 2020. And what is vitally important is that we choose the best possible person who is going to defeat Donald Trump, at least from my perspective. And right now we have a lot of candidates and we are going to have many more, likely in the double digits. 
so crowded that I don't know how they're going to fit on a debate stage. And what is really important for all of us to do as voters and for those of us to do who write publicly about these issues is dig into these records and educate ourselves so that we're picking the person who we believe best represents our values and is most able to grapple with their past because nobody is perfect. And it's really just about, I think, reckoning and being truly honest and being willing to acknowledge harm and change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I definitely, um, I think that's good. And so now I'm sitting here scrolling, like, hmm, making note, must look up book for further reading. <laughs> but I appreciate oh, that, I will right? send it to you. I will send it to you and I will <laughs> autograph it. Yes. I will send it to you for free. <laughs> but no, seriously. Um, but no, seriously, I think I appreciate that, right? Because we do need to have a conversation about, because we're going to have a bunch of people running who have issues in their records, whether it's their issues being Congress people, whether in the House or in the Senate or both, whether it is, you know, whatever other office they have held and how do we look at that arc? And so since we have been talking about her, um, I still feel like even though she says she takes responsibility or she owns her record, I don't know that we've actually had a good, you know, explanation or discussion to help us transcend from what her record has been to where she's trying to position herself now. You know, there was a recent article and she says there are fundamental flaws in the criminal justice system and the criminal justice system needs to be reformed. But at the same time, like, even though there are systems that may exist, prosecutors, even at those local levels, like county level attorneys, uh, prosecuting attorneys and DAs have a lot of power and authority to enact change that other, that, that they, I mean, their hands are not tied in the same way like members of the state legislature are, right? Or, or city council people. They have in, in their prosecutorial function, not being a part of like a legislative branch per se, they have a lot of power to do and to act in a way that other members who are making decisions do not, right? Other public representatives do not. And so I just, I'm just still trying and hopefully, because you're right, we have a long time. This is gonna be a long cycle. And, um, you know, her fundraising and stuff, she's probably going to have say power. So, I mean, I appreciate what you wrote because I didn't take it as, and also because I have a similar viewpoint, so maybe that colors my judgment some, I don't think so. But like, I didn't take it as you were attacking her or being a firing squad. I took it as this is a really good compendium of someone from the region who actually understands what the issues are, who actually understands this area. Cause that's something else people keep saying, like we have to understand what it is to be a prosecutor. And I think that's a cop out. I mean, when we look at, you know, the role of prosecutorial discretion, when we look at the role of prosecutors in, you know, maintaining a system of mass incarceration um, in, ta- in terms of, you know, the over usage of, of, of private, um, uh, uh, not private bail, but, but, but the, the bail industry, as you pointed to, was another issue too. But when we look at, you know, private, um, what is it, when you're at parole and probation, right? Like, like there's so much going on that these are individuals who really could actually be a safeguard instead of contributing to, you know, further exacerbating conditions for folks. And so just, you know, before we wrap up, just thinking like, you know, as we as we look at, you know, this rebranding as progressive, as for the people, I mean, there's so many different issues that so many different people, not all folks in the same political alignment are raising. You have folks raising, you know, her her decision to deny sexual reassignment surgery to a, a, a trans incarcerated person. 
I mean, there are so many different things as we're looking at who's going to be the one against Trump. How should we be focusing, you know, our criticism critique to not get marred down in, you know, maybe not saying that any of it's irrelevant, but how do we focus on criticism critique in a way that's productive and can push not just her because she has a specific record, but anyone in this field on these issues that are so crucial to so many of us? I think you put your finger on it that prosecutors, local prosecutors are so unbelievably powerful because they have discretion. They decide who to charge, what to charge, what sentence to seek. And so this gives them this enormous authority. And I'm not sure that voters until recently have been so very aware of that or have necessarily paid attention to these down ballot races, which in turn has empowered district attorney associations and police associations to exercise a disproportionate amount of power when it comes to election time, which in turn has, I think, put a lot of pressure on people like Kamala Harris to try to satisfy their concerns. And so one important piece of this is the role that we all play as the voters, because politicians respond as they should to the will of the people. And so when we demand a reckoning and we demand an accounting and we demand a candidate who is going to be truly progressive in the ways that you and I have talked about and in other ways as well, we do our part in furthering the dialogue and in raising the chances that we're going to end up with a nominee who's someone who truly reflects our values. And I also agree with you that this is not at all a personal attack. It's not tearing someone down as a human being. It's simply saying, if you want my vote for the most important office in the world, really, and certainly in our country, then you need to be forthright and honest. And there is some accounting that you have to do for your record in the same way that every other candidate has to do. Yeah, appreciate that for real. Any final thoughts as we wrap up our conversation today? Just it was a super real pleasure to talk to you and please send me your address so I can send you my book. <laughs> I love it. Yay. <laughs> it's, it's so awesome. Um, let folks know like where they can find you um, to just learn more about your work and read more. Sure. So you can find me, you can follow me on Twitter at Laura Bazelon. You can look me up on USF School of Law's website or on my own website, www.laurabazelon.com. There's no you in my first name. And my book is available on Amazon and at various indie outlets and hopefully at your local bookstore. It is called Rectify the Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. I like that. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us, Professor Bazelon. Really, really great to talk to you. I hope we can find time to chat again. Uh, you guys stay tuned. There's more coming. Peace. Thank you for having me. Good morning. I, again, am joined by Jen Stanley, who is a pro senior producer for Rewire.News. You guys know I absolutely love the folks over at Rewire.News. If you've been following any of the coverage, um, from uh, Jessica Piccolo and Amani Gandhi of, you know, this is what's been happening with SCOTUS and so much other great work that's been happening. Um, definitely go check them out. Uh, so Jen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really, really appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, so you are the creator, host, and producer of, of, of a podcast, a narrative podcast, Choiceless, um, focusing on reproductive injustice. And, and laws that are putting people into choiceless situations. I, I appreciate that framing of choiceless. Um, 
can you just talk to me a little bit about just 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 some some of the impetus behind um, your your podcast? Yeah. So you know, we've been talking a lot about how you know with the Brett Kavanaugh nomination that you know Roe could be overturned, Roe v. Wade could be overturned, and 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 how that obviously would hurt abortion rights. But I started this podcast in 2016. I had started thinking about starting it a few years before that as a response to anti-abortion legislation that was being passed across the country um, to a degree that I think a lot of people didn't know about that was affecting people's access to abortion care to the extent that for some people based on their zip code, like they really just don't have access to abortion Mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to highlight those stories and just show the actual effects of what these laws, uh, the actual effects these laws have, um, as well as just, you know, kind of peeling back um, the curtain of why these laws are passed, really. So I think once you start talking to people about their real experience, about what abortion looks like, or transition care looks like, or adoption in America looks like, once you start really peeling back that curtain, I think that um, the listeners can start to understand that like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have certain laws restricting this, and maybe we should be expanding rights and care. That, That was my hope in being able to tell these very personal stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I appreciate that. So just thinking about the first episode of the season, you talk about, you know, your own story of being adopted and how that affected your opinion of abortion. Can you talk about that and how your perspective has changed over time? Yeah. So in this new season, season four, we're focusing all on one topic, which is teen sex abortion and the law. Um, And one of the things that had inspired me or or made me really want to focus on on teenagers and abortion is that I am I was born to a teenage parent, as was my sister, uh, who placed us for adoption at birth. Um, so I never met her, and I, you know, I don't know what her circumstance was. I really don't know much about her, except that she was Catholic, and I, I was told from a very young age that her Catholicism maybe led her to not use birth control. You know, maybe that's why she had us. It's definitely why she chose life and not abortion. Um, and there have been a lot of, I think, shame surrounding my abortion. Not that my parents had put on me. Um, but maybe that just the kids in town did. I grew up in a small suburb. Being different was definitely not okay. And so when kids found out that we were adopted, they they weren't nice about it um, mm-hmm. for the most part. I mean, I would say overwhelmingly, and it would it just made me feel like it was a shameful secret. And when I went to a that was in public school, and when I went to a Catholic high school um, that had a very anti-abortion message, they kind of quickly latched onto my story as anti-choice propaganda. Um, and I, I fell for it. I, you know, I, I always believed that abortion should be legal. Um, but I, you know, I was very much, you know, being told at, at 14, you know, your 
your birth mother couldn't murder you. And and teenagers, you know, teenagers right. tend to feel like they're the center of the universe. You know, it's just a weird time and you're trying to figure out who you are to have such strong messaging being told to you. Meanwhile, 14-year-olds aren't really hearing about a lot of people who have abortions, um, even though many of their classmates probably are statistically, um, which is something, um, as, as you'll know from the first episode, I learned that a classmate of mine who I had had a, an argument about with, about abortion with, um, that she, you know, she was saying things that had insulted me as an adopted person, but she mm-hmm. had just gone through an abortion herself. Um, oh, wow. yeah. And, and so that being able to come together as adults and talk about what that anti-abortion shaming at our school was like. Um, and it was a great conversation. I, I feel so grateful to have been able to have that um, because my views on abortion changed very rapidly after high school. You know, it's like I went to a very liberal college and also just became mm-hmm. an adult and was able to think for myself. And, and I didn't identify with Catholicism anymore shortly after that. And a lot of that was I mean, for many reasons, and one of those reasons is because of the way women are treated by the church and and the kind of messaging that was told to me from a very young age. Right, 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 right. Wow. Um, so, yeah, definitely understand, like, like I was mentioning when we were, before we started recording, you know, my I have a 17-year-old. So even thinking about how her understanding of abortion has even you know, progressed from 14 when we really first started having that conversation when she entered high school to now as a senior. Um, you know, it's been very interesting. And as a parent who has never really discussed my own abortion story with other folks, um, you know, the, the, the moment when she basically asked me and I'm like, I can't lie to you, right? So we had a very, you know, last year, her junior year, we had a very honest conversation. Um, about my own, you know, younger years and, and, and that, so this is why I, I really appreciate this topic and what your work on it and, um, and how we talk to them, but also like you're, you're, you're also looking at, you know, when we're talking about access for teens and people know about Roe v. Wade, Erin, we know that there, um, some folks, some folks might know the issue of like parental notification laws and things of that nature, but like, can you talk a little bit about just a little bit just about parental notification laws and some of that that those barriers that exist for teenagers and that make it extremely difficult for them to even access the opportunity or 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 the choice i guess Yes. So parental involvement laws exist in 38 states. So there's only 12 Mm. states that don't have a law on the books that say teenagers need to involve a parent in their abortion decision. Now, these laws vary from state to state. Some require uh, explicit consent from one or both parents. Some Mm -hmm. just require notification. But in a lot of ways, you know, as a teenager who's a minor who, you know, needs parents permission for things, I mean, that is... uh, in effect, a consent law for a lot of people. Um, but you know, a lot of teenagers don't have parents at home. A lot of a lot of teenagers are living outside of the home and are parenting. You know, mm-hmm. um, so this law doesn't. It, it targets certain people. It, it targets some folks to make it so that they really can't have an abortion unless they're able to go to a a, a courtroom and petition a judge. Um, to prove that they're either mature enough to have an abortion without involving a parent or that um, it would be in their best interest not to involve a parent. But that 
even that decision, there's really no standard. And so the judge can kind of make the decision based on how they're feeling or what their political views are, or what their religious views are, or maybe they just don't want to give the teenager, quote unquote, permission to have this abortion. Now, a lot of people don't really think about these laws ever and don't know that they exist until they kind of come up against them. I found that in this reporting a lot that people kind of when you ask them, they had to really think about what that meant. And they were like, oh, well, I, you know, I guess teenagers should tell their parents. Um, but there isn't really a lot of media coverage on these laws. So I think that we're lacking this ability to think critically about what these laws really mean, why they were put in place, and who they're specifically meant to target. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really strong point as well in terms about who the laws, I mean, it just seems like when we look at restrictions on abortion and access, and I like like what you, how you frame it in terms of choiceless, what, 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 what ineffectively renders people choiceless, um, we do see a lot of marginalization obviously happening, you know, across race and across, you know, uh, uh, a class, I mean, it's definitely a gender equity issue, like being able to have choice over, you know, our reproductive means and healthcare access. But just thinking about, you know, with 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 these with these with these laws in terms of parental violence, parental notification, like, is there? Do you do you think there's a connection between the way in which you know we have sex education in some of these states or places? And the way these laws, like, are we seeing like some of the same trends in the way people are making, I guess, policy decisions overall, not just in the legal realm and how it restrictive, you know, restricts information and access for, um, well, I mean, for a lot of people, but for in particular for teenagers. Yeah, that's a great question. And and it it depends. But I would say, yes, mm-hmm. that, that it, there is definitely a trend for more anti-choice legislation. And so where we see in particularly in red states. Um, where there are often many um, abortion restrictions on the book, on the books, um, with no that have no scientific or medical basis. Um, so, so those kinds of restrictions might be, say, a seventy-two hour waiting period between the time you you have to go to for two appointments. So, one appointment to go in for to say you need the abortion, and and they are going. The doctors have to doctors or or some provider at the at the clinic might have to give you medically inaccurate information in this counseling session, things like abortion causes breast cancer, and then, you know, to try to convince you not to have an abortion. And then you have to wait 72 hours before you can actually go to get the abortion, have the procedure, mm-hmm. um, or, or take the medication. Um, and so like, by doing this, that makes abortion uh, inaccessible to somebody, right, who would have to travel, and especially for somebody who's a teenager who's going to have to, like, maybe have a parent knowing where they are for those 72 hours. So if you're in a state like Texas, where the nearest clinic might be very far away, hundreds of miles away, um, you know, for a teenager to have an abortion, then that would be nearly impossible. And then there is an additional law in Texas that that requires teenagers to um, notify their parents of their abortion. And so then they have to get a judicial bypass and maybe have to go out of school for that. Um, so yes, we do find that in red states, there are just like so many mounting um, anti-abortion laws that it really makes accessing abortion near impossible um, for for many people. But then we have states like Illinois, um, which 
is kind of an anomaly in the Midwest. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of reproductive rights and reproductive justice advocates refer to Illinois as the hole in the donut, meaning that all of the surrounding states um, around Illinois, they're considered hostile to abortion by the Guttmacher Institute. They have many abortion restrictions in effect, including parental notification laws. So Illinois used to be the state where, I mean, it still is a state where people come to Illinois to access abortion care when they can't get it in their own states. And that included teenagers. Um, it was a place that teenagers could go to access abortion care without notifying a parent. And that is no longer the case because Illinois passed a parental notification law um, in 2013. Now, what is interesting, though, is that even though the rate of uh, teen abortions have, have gone down or minor abortions have gone down in Illinois since the law went into effect, you can also look at the data that says those numbers were going down long before the law went into effect, and that was a trend. But you also still see you, you see an increase of people coming from states um, surrounding Illinois to come to Illinois to have abortions, even after that law has been put into effect. And that's because an increasing number of restrictions are being passed that are making abortion more difficult to access. Um, and we see a similar thing that happened in, in Massachusetts. In episode one, we hear from, from Jane um, and she needed to leave Massachusetts to access abortion care in New Hampshire. Now, now that wouldn't be possible. This happened back in 2001 or 2002. Um, but New Hampshire has since passed a parental notification law. And the anti-choice activists who were behind that law said specifically that they had noticed that at the clinics in New Hampshire, there were a lot of Massachusetts plates. Um, and so they wanted a law like this to go into effect so that teenagers couldn't come up from Massachusetts to access, uh, to access abortion care in New Hampshire. And they wanted to shut that down. So yes, we do see this as a trend that comes as more and more regulations are being passed. This one kind of is the cherry on top of all of these regulations that make abortion just kind of that just say to teenagers, like, listen, we don't want anyone having abortions, but we definitely we can control teenagers. This is a place that we can stop teenagers from getting this care. So we are going to put this law on top of it that really makes it difficult. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, just I was thinking about like the second episode, uh, episode two of the season. Um, you kind of shifting a little bit and just still thinking about, you know, just barriers to access, restricting choice in, in terms of treatment. Um, you know, you and Imani Gandhi had a conversation. Imani, for those, I know most of you are aware of who she is, but for those not aware, she's senior legal analyst also at rewire.news. Um, you all discussed this point about how, like, you know, minors are allowed to consent to medical treatment for pregnancy, um, can obtain treatment for STDs you know, can have a child, give up a child, but there, there, there are these restrictions and limitations, um, you know, to, you know, bearing access or choice, you know, in terms of abortion. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think honestly, to me, that's what proves that these uh, laws are not about better communication or better mm -hmm. outcomes for teenagers. Because yes, people, a lot of people who don't know about these laws, you know, when we ask them about them, just people on the street, uh, when I talk to my own family about them, right, the immediate reaction they have is, oh, yeah, but of course, teenagers need to ask their parents permission for everything. But 
that's actually not true. Not when a teenager is pregnant or parenting, they can, they can say that they can, um, consent to all healthcare for themselves and their own dependents. Um, so it's, it's specifically with abortion. Um, and then, you know, later in that episode, we talked to judge Susan Fox Gillis. She's a, a former Cook County judge. She just retired and she's heard many, many judicial bypass cases since the law in Illinois went into effect in 2013. She's also heard many adopt contested adoption cases. And, you know, she said that, the contested adoptions are are the saddest cases that she has ever heard in any of the time that she was a judge. And yet, no, there was no, there, there was no need for parental involvement. There was no need for, um, for the same kind of hoops for, for a teenager to decide to place a child for adoption. Um, and that that is just, just as abortion is a decision that might affect you for the rest of your life, uh, adoption Placing a child for adoption is also a decision that will affect you for the rest of your life. Um, but we have this, the con this country has this uh, mindset that adoption is always this great and beautiful thing. And we don't like to think about how complicated it can be. And this hurts adoptees, it hurts birth parents, and I think it hurts adoptive parents too. I don't think we're having good conversations about adoption. I don't think we're having good resources for adoptive parents or birth parents or adopted children. Um, and, and so I think you can kind of paint these broad brushstrokes that it's just this very, very happy thing. Um, and, and there's no communication happening there either. And a lot of the communication happening around it is anti-abortion uh, right. So how can we make this a full spectrum conversation so that we know young people and anybody who is making any decisions about their their reproductive life and, and their futures, um, that they have the full access to information that they need to make an informed decision instead of these laws, you know, they show you that there's a shame in abortion. The fact that there is a law for abortion, but not any other kind of medical care, not not adoption, to me, that signals to people that, oh, the government thinks that abortion is wrong and that I shouldn't be doing it. Um, and I don't think that's a great way to be entering a, a discussion about your reproductive decisions that will affect you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely appreciate that. Um, so just, just, just as you're thinking about like just this work that you, as you've been doing it and kind of where you're directing, like what, what do you see? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you envision like the work that you've been doing and, and the impact that you hope that this will have on this whole discourse as a whole? Already since, um, posting this on social. Um, I've heard from people from my high school who are saying, oh, I remember this. Oh, I was adopted. And this is exactly what my experience was. Um, it took me years to um, unlearn the sex shame that I was taught in high school. And people from other high schools have said similar things that, oh, we need to be talking about this. I didn't have sex ed. I didn't have this information. And I was taught, especially I think women um, and people who are underrepresented in, in sex ed. So any LGBTQ person in, in many in sex ed across many states do not teach 
any sex ed that affects anybody besides married men and women, right? Like that, that sex ed is supposed to just be like, wait until you are married to somebody of the opposite sex. Um, so people just kind of aren't getting this information at all. And they're saying, we want this information and we want our kids to have this information. And I think that that has been a very exciting conversation. And I hope there's more of that. I, I think in episode three, um, one of the youth activists, Nikki, she says, you know, she wanted to talk about sex and her body in high school so that other kids learned that it was okay to talk about sex and their body. Um, we have a sex educator in episode four who says that a lot of her sex ed workshops, especially for the younger children, are really like anti-bullying. They're about negotiating consent even within friendships. All of these things are tied um, to one another and could lead to just, I think, happier children who who become happier adults, who have some uh, real autonomy and ownership over their bodies and the decisions that they make for their bodies. So that's what I hope. I hope that this series helps people say, yeah, that that wasn't so great what I was taught then. And, and the next generation, I want to teach them better and teach them that they have ownership over their bodies and they get to make those decisions about their bodies. Mhm, mhm, mhm. Definitely, definitely. Wow, this is great. Um, so is there anything else? Just in thinking about just you know this concept of reproductive injustice and 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 you know the way legal constraints are being placed upon people. Is there just anything else that you think that our listeners should just really you know kind of take away from you know kind of this topic as a whole? The biggest takeaway I would say, the thing that I really learned through reporting this, is that. It's not just about these conversations need to be happening in high school. These conversations need to be happening so much earlier so that by the time the teenager is close to thinking, is even thinking about sex, right, is even starting to feel differently about their bodies and other people, um, that they feel comfortable going to some adult in their life to talk to about this with. And if adults never talk to them about it, they'll never feel comfortable going to them. I, I think that that's, you know, that's been the case for me personally, but I didn't even think about that. I didn't even think that that might have led to a lack of being able to talk to any adults in my life about my sexuality or learn about sex. And I, I think a lot of people feel that way that like uh, uh, during the, when the playwrights were um, from ICA were taking um, personal abortion stories of people in Illinois for a play that they were creating that you'll hear in episode five, which airs, aired today for the first time. Um, they said that one of the things that they heard across the board that every person said that they interviewed was, I wish I could talk to my parents about this. Mm -hmm. I wanted to tell my parents, but I don't think they wanted to know, or I didn't feel like I could, or I didn't think I was safe. Um, and that's, that's sad to me that, that the people who are having, it's not that they're, it's the external shame that is keeping people from being able to talk about this. People want to talk about it. They, they want you to know, I think like, hey, I made this decision and, and I didn't think I would make this decision, but I did and I'm okay, you know? Um, or just maybe maybe they're not okay and they want to talk about it, but, but that that option doesn't feel there for a lot of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate you taking time to, to chat about this. Looking forward to catching episode five. You guys definitely go check out Choiceless. Um, which is an amazing podcast from Jen Stanley over at rewire.news. 
Jin is, as I mentioned earlier, a senior producer. And this is an amazing conversation. This is an amazing topic that you've chosen to focus on. And I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much.